Today on Basic, Bravo's Andy Cohen. I was in charge of current programming. So I was in charge of making the shows that got greenlit. And it was a VHS tape. And it, it was these women in Orange County. And there were their boobs were huge. And their kids were really hot. And the way they communicated with their kids was like all wrong, but interesting. This woman was an insurance agent. And she had a grotto in her backyard. What is this? At the time, Desperate Housewives was the biggest show on ABC. I have always been a huge soap opera fan. So in my mind, all these women knew each other. So this could be like a soap opera. It was weird. The first season of The Housewives in Orange County, it's like watching those first Simpsons episodes from the Tracy Ullman show. It's like you see the brilliance, but it's not all there yet. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Basic, the official podcast of the unofficial history of cable television. I'm Doug Herzog, a former TV executive, and I'm ready to watch what happens live, or in our case, recorded. And I'm Jen Cheney, a TV critic for Vulture and New York Magazine. And I'm actually secretly a real housewife of Potomac, Maryland. Our guest today is Bravo's Andy Cohen, or as he's known to his social media followers, Bravo Andy. We'll talk about his evolution from cable exec to cable star. Andy Cohen has spearheaded a lot of what we consider to be modern reality TV, specifically the massive Real Housewives franchise. He's also the host of Watch What Happens Live, the long-running late-night talk show on Bravo. And when he's not doing those things, he's busy writing books, touring with his pal Anderson Cooper, and appearing on his own station, Radio Andy, right here on Sirius XM for our listeners who are joining us on Satellite Radio. And he's always entertaining to talk to, so let's get right into it with Andy Cohen and stick around after to hear Jen and I unpack the whole thing. Andy Cohen, we are so excited to welcome you to this episode of BASIC, and we're going to start off the way we always start off with uh, the same question we ask of everyone, which is, can you remember either when you first got cable television or you first saw cable television? Yes, I remember when I got cable television, it, it changed my life completely. I was so excited, and I was mainly excited for two things, MTV and seeing guys' asses on Cinemax. <laughs> so, you had yeah. to pay extra for that, though, of course. Yeah, my parents paid extra <laughs> for that. And, I mean, if I timed it right, I could masturbate to Billy Joel's Allentown video because they showed asses in that. Did they? I don't remember that. Yeah, there was a shower scene and then the I'm Still Standing video, Elton John. Sure. There were guys in like thongs. Mm -hmm. So I remember, and then I remember like, yeah, there were like Lady Chatterley's Lover would be on Cinemax at like 1230 <laughs> in the morning. And I, so, yes, it was kind of MTV for music and masturbatory stuff and then Cinemax for the same. Andy Cohen already delivering on the most colorful answer to a question we've asked a hundred times. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, so once you got out in front of the TV and Lady Chatterley's Lover, you found yourself in Boston, BU, mm -hmm. studying journalism. What was the uh, what was Andy Cohen's plan at that time? Do you remember? Plan was to be a local reporter and anchor and move around from market to market. Uh, as one does in the local news business. And I majored in broadcast journalism at BU. So then, you know, after that, you started working at CBS News. First, you were an intern, I believe, but then later you were, 
you know, producing like the early show and CBS This Morning. Yeah. How did those roles prepare you for what you do now? Like what things did you take from that? Oh, wow. Uh, Working under a deadline, making fast decisions. I mean, I think working in news is just, it's a great, I mean, it used to be a great place to train for so many different jobs in a weird way. I mean, just because everything was, you know, very deadline oriented and very, you know, I had to write under deadline. I had to edit pieces under deadline. I had to make snap decisions. Producing segments for the morning show taught me about TV time. I mean, I could, if they said, okay, you, okay, you're covering the Oscars and you have you know, three and a half minutes for a piece. In my mind, I knew exactly what I could fit into that or doing a live interview, producing a live interview. If they said it's four and a half minutes or it's five and a half minutes, I knew exactly what I could fit into that amount of time. And certainly now I'm, you know, it's, I I, I have a live show and it's 22 minutes and we arguably fit more into that 22 minutes than, than most people do in a half an hour. And I feel like, you know, part of, part of the reason is because I have a bit of short attention span, you know, I have a short attention span and I want to deliver for my viewers who might be bored at this second, that there's something else coming up in another second. But also I just think that I, you know, have from, from 1991 or 1990, that's when I started paying attention to, okay, how long is four minutes in TV time and what can you really do? And it's still on my brain. Mm. I mean, the other thing journalism does you're working under that deadline pressure, but also ideally you don't screw up. So you start holding yourself to a very, very high standard or at least true, but I screwed up all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I screwed up all the time. By the way, I do want to say then when I was at 48 hours, I think like when I saw what magicians, the editors at 48 hours were, I think that opened my eyes to then when I was in charge of programming at trio and then Bravo I think it opened my mind up in terms of all that could be done in the edit as I was giving notes on, on shows. Mm. Right now before just, and we're going to jump into to trio and Bravo in a second, but at CBS, you were not doing anything on air at that point though, right? It was all behind the scenes. Correct. I was um, basically, I really wanted to be on the air. I wanted to be on the air in a way that I could be myself on the air. And that's tough at CBS news, right? And well, it is. And also, yeah, I mean, my last internship was at CBS News in New York. And once I did that, I was like, I'm not moving to Iowa. Like, I'm not, (laughs) I don't want to do that. I was like, I'm, I want to go straight to the big time and I'll just work behind the scenes. And there were many, I did have a boss who is still a producer at Sunday morning. Doug, you probably know Jay Kernis. I do. But Jay, Jay was like, your eye, you know, you're, you have a really bad wandering eye. So I don't think you're going to work on camera. And I was like, what I do. And I called my mom. I was like, are you aware that I have a really bad wandering eye? She's like, that is ridiculous. And of course, the second (laughs) I did wind up on air, I heard from everyone about how cross-eyed I was, but Um, So Jay told me that. And then also I really did just think I'm just going to move to New York during the time that I was a a producer at the morning show. I would audition to be a VJ every so often. Um, I would still try. I, I tried 
like little dribs and drabs here and there. So yeah, but so being do. in front of the camera, that was a something you really wanted to do. I still wanted to do it, but I was having so much success behind the camera. And by the way, my version of having so much success was just I was a really active producer on the morning show. I mean, I was like, I was in the title, I think was my first title as a, I was a desk assistant. And then I got promoted within a year to assistant producer. And I was like 23 and I was an assistant producer on the morning show and they let you do everything. I mean, I was producing full segments. I was flying all over the place. I was booking guests. I was covering all sorts of things. And I was like, well, this is major. Like I'm producing for CBS News. It meant so much to me. So I thought, well, I'm a big success right now. I just thought, you know, I'm a big success. So like, why am I going to go to some small town and try to be on camera? That seemed. But those those jobs are great jobs that put you right at the center of pop culture every day and and you could call anybody and say i'm from cbs news and everybody's yes. returning your call right and you get to meet everybody the show right? was a dud it was the number we don't forget we were up against joan london and charlie gibson and katie couric and, and bryant oh Brian. you know wow. and then katie and matt and it was like so we did not stand a chance so any small victory that we won was a huge victory for right. us i mean we were getting creamed daily on in the booking wars and all this stuff but it really it's great opportunity yeah exactly it yeah. was always everything was an opportunity when you're number three you're still you're gonna be number three so you can you know you can try shit right can try shit yeah so anyway it was a very exciting time for me and i and i had give, given up on it but it does take some risks i right? will say Stakes all those years later when i wound up in front of the camera it really was such a gift to me that i was able to do that so many years later and it was something that i thought had absolutely the train had left the station so it's really i consider still myself so blessed I mean, the other night, by the way, I was uh, where oh, I went to Waverly Inn the other night with my my college roommate and his wife, and it was packed in there. And they brought us right to the table, and I was like, you know what? I will never forget this because I spent twenty years in New York City not being able to get a table. So it's like that's something <laughs> that you have to carry with you. You know what I mean? I'm curious. Did you always feel like even when you were doing like those VJ auditions or whatever, did you always feel comfortable on camera or was that a problem? No, I think I was really bad. The the tape exists of me. There is some tape of me that I shot. I would occasionally have the cameraman like, you know, shoot, do cutaway. Cause I would be doing interviews with people when, when it was an ENG shoot, when I was with a camera crew, but I would be off camera. So, but I would sometimes shoot a stand up where I was and then cut a piece and keep myself asking the questions. And I was just terrible. I mean, it's embarrassing. <laughs> I, I need to post some of these, but there is so bad. So you gave up a promising career behind the scenes in TV news to join a little-known, teeny-tiny cable network from Canada, right? Yes. Called Trio. Yes. So could you tell us about the transition into Trio, why you decided to get into that side of the business? And just also remind our viewers a little bit like what Trio was. Well, I'll tell you what Trio was. And the, the answer to why I left what I considered to be a very cushy job at CBS News, I was I – was, now, when I left, that was the year 2000, so – 
what, I was 32 years old and I was really, I had so much vacation time. I had been there for 10 years. I could pick and choose what I did. I was a senior producer of all the entertainment segments for, of the entertainment unit on the morning show. I mean, I really had a great life, but it was because Barry Diller uh, had become a friend of mine and he was starting this little pop culture and arts channel that he had acquired called Trio. And really all Trio was, was real estate at this point. It was, I think the distribution was only in 18 million homes, but they were going to get distribution in New York City on Time Warner Cable, which was a big deal. And it was going to happen in like two years. So we had two years to make this channel into something. And he knew that I was everywhere covering everything at CBS News. And he said, well, why don't you be in charge of this? It's going to be like a documentary pop culture and arts channel. And I didn't want to leave CBS, but I thought that the opportunity to work for Barry Diller was too big. And it was, he was offering me a career change and offering me a, a place where I could learn how to run how I could learn how to run production at a cable channel. How could I say no to that? Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. If I'm not mistaken, Bravo eventually acquired Trio, I think. So what happened is we, Trio, we wound up coming up with a, a great little channel. It was mixed with a lot of acquisitions. And we, I think the tentpole thing that we did uh, that people remembered us from, we did a month of documentaries and programming around the theme Brilliant But Canceled. That's right. Mm -hmm. And we yes, had Brilliant that. But Canceled TV shows, everything from Stephen Bochco's Cop Rock to, you know, just all of these shows that were kind of ahead of their time. And we we licensed them and broadcast them. And then we also, you know, and we did a documentary around it. And that really got us known and people loved it. And we aired the old NBC David Letterman shows. 
shows and right. all this stuff. And so in New York City, it became something of a of a of a cult channel. Trio did. It was cool. Yeah, it was cool. And then of course we became brilliant, but canceled ourselves as <laughs> wound up happening. And I think Barry, we were. It was owned by USA Television, so we were part. We were part of USA Sci-Fi and trio i think and then they merged with and with universal and then nbc merged with universal so we became and then bravo was there and that was when i was offered by lauren zelaznik the job running programming at bravo and lauren had been my boss at trio and by the way i didn't want the bravo job i thought i didn't i didn't i what happened was Viacom was starting Logo that's and right. Logo was going to be the gay channel. And I was like, well, that's what I want to do. I want to run the gay channel. And there's no one gayer than me and I should do this and I'm perfect. <laughs> and I remember I had a meeting with Brian Graydon. It was Brian Graydon. And he, oh no, actually it was pre Brian Graydon. It was even before it was, it was uh, a lesbian. And she and I said, I want to do drag. I said, I think drag should be on there and this. And they were like, we don't want drag on the channel. And we and now it's built on RuPaul's Drag. Of course, yeah. Um, and they, they told me a couple. Anyway, I did not get the job. And I did wind up talking to Brian Grazer about it. So I don't know if I went back in or what. Right. I'm I, trying to remember now the name of that woman. I cannot recall her name, who was the original logo person. In. She was very nice. She, I didn't get the job. And I couldn't get over it. And when I tell you that I was so salty about not getting this job, I just couldn't get over it. I was like, who are these people? People. Like, this is insane. Now, the best thing that ever happened to me was that I didn't get that job. Like, thank God. I wouldn't be talking to you right now. I wouldn't have gotten a table at the Waverly Inn. I mean, like, forget <laughs> it. You wouldn't so, have that fancy microphone from Meghan Markle. Right. So then did you bring some of those kinds of ideas to Bravo? Because, you know, Bravo originally was very arts focused and then it completely well, changed. Bravo was super gay, but arguably Bravo was super gay by the time I got there. Queer Eye had just broken out. Right. They were in the middle of shooting season one of Project Runway. They had already had a show called Gay Weddings on. They had had this gay dating show called Boy Meets Boy. And I think what Logo wanted to do was Logo had this Fakakta idea that they wanted to be gay without being too gay. So they wanted to, they wanted to be a gay channel, but they wanted straight people to watch. Right. And mm -hmm. so it was like, well, okay. But I think that was kind of what was happening. It was at like Bravo. watered down versus what Bravo was doing. It was watered down. It was kind of what was happening at Bravo, but that just kind of happened as a mistake. I think just like, you know, it was like kind of gay, gay guys and women watching it. What's the first thing you got involved with when you got to Well, the Bravo? first thing I got involved with was one of my biggest flops, and I was so sure of it at the time, but it was a show that I thought was a brilliant idea. At Trio, we aired Battle of the Network Stars, oh, the old Battle of the Network Stars show. And I loved it so much. And I, my, I said – you know what? The real stars of today are reality stars. Let's go back to Pepperdine. Let's get the rights to Battle of the Network stars. Let's make it like kind of 70s, but let's make it all reality stars competing against each other. So it was everyone from Richard Hatch, 
people from American Idol, people right. from Project Runway. I mean, it was everybody. Anyway, they did a big marketing campaign around Charla from The Amazing Race, The Swan. I mean, it was a very funny group of people. We They did a big marketing campaign on it, and it was a big bomb. And, of course, we did research as to why it bombed, and they said this was not a show that people on – people watching Bravo didn't want to see this kind of show. But had it been on E! or VH1, it would have been a big hit. It's a good idea. It was a good idea, and it was my first great lesson in – Building around your brand, programming right. around your brand. And don't, you know, we went on to do other shows that were kind of off off brand, but we then honed our brand and we did it very well. It's just so funny to think that they didn't want, they thought people on Bravo would not want to watch people like competing. And then Real Housewives is like literally like kind of that in a way. Well. <laughs> sort in, of, not the a, sports. In a but... meta way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Tell us about the Housewives franchise and how that all started. Um, now, arguably one of the biggest franchises in all of pop culture. Yes, it's incredible uh, that this is still going on. But I, I, uh, I was in charge of current programming, so I was in charge of making the shows that got greenlit. So that was a show that was handed over from development. She, I remember Amy Intercasso Davis coming to me and saying, "Take a look at this." We don't know what it is, but we like it. We think we like it. And it was a VHS tape and it and Vicky Gunvalson was on it and a few other women who are who didn't wind up being on the show, but it was these women in Orange County and there were their boobs were huge and their kids were really hot and the way they communicated <laughs> with their kids was like all wrong but interesting and like they were just like this woman was an insurance agent and she had a grotto in her backyard and her boobs were enormous <laughs> and like what is this and I think that Scott Dunlop who brought it to us who was an ad exec he I don't know if he thought that this would be like a Curb Your Enthusiasm type show because there was this weird narration on it. I, I don't know. Anyway, at the time, Desperate Housewives was the biggest show on ABC. And I have always been a huge soap opera fan. So in my mind, this could they all these women knew each other so this could be like a soap opera could this be a soap opera and wouldn't that be great if it was a soap opera and season one it was it was weird the first season of the housewives in orange county it's like watching those first simpsons episodes from the <laughs> tracy ullman show it's like right. you see the brilliance but it's not all there not all yet. there yeah um, and so I think that's what it was. There was a lot of drama with the pro people that we hired to produce it who were not, I don't think, doing a job in our mind that they should have been. And we wound up getting rid of them and bringing someone in for post. Anyway, we there, it came to a point where we almost killed the show. I remember we had a meeting uh, with Lauren Zelaznik, and the question was, how much would we lose if we killed this show? And for some reason, I remember like a $400,000. It was going to be a $400,000 loss at that point. And that's big for cable television. I know, but it seems low right <laughs> seems now. Seems low. Yeah, yeah. 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 In retrospect, yeah, of course. Yeah. But um, so Lauren said, let's just do it. And we did it. And here we are 16 years later. Did it take off immediately? No, it didn't. Was it like an instant success? Towards the end. Lauren was a big marathoner. That right. was her thing. 
And I think that's how they broke Project Runway. That's how they broke Project Runway. And I think that there was were some marathons and it started to get it didn't catch on immediately, but I remember it, it started to get a little notice and people were there started to be an uptick towards the end of the season so much that we ordered a reunion kind of episode, but there was no one to host it. So it was the women sitting in Vicky's backyard just looking at clips from the season. It was very mm. weird. But um, I seem to remember some traction over Christmas time, and there you go. Now, for me, the big thing was we were starting to shoot season two, and Gina announced to us that she was going to get divorced. And I was like, I felt like a good friend of mine had told me that they were getting divorced. And then in my mind, I was like, oh, my God, it's a soap opera. It's really a soap opera. Gina's getting divorced, and we're going to... And what is Gina going to start dating now? And what are her friends going to say? And, you know, it was like the attributes of a soap and, right. you know, and it is, was, is, and remains. Yeah. And that's why it's still going by the way. Yeah. At, at what point did it occur to you? Like we can do this in multiple cities and make many versions of this. It didn't occur to me. It occurred to Lauren Zelaznik who the original title for the original show was the real housewives the real housewives and she said let's not call it that let's call it the real housewives of orange county in case we ever do it anywhere else and i was like that is the dumbest title i ever <laughs> heard i was like the real housewives of orange count like what does that even mean like i didn't get it and of course there you go we were in development on a show called manhattan moms and once again amy and tracaso davis brings me this tape and she's like we think this could be like new york housewives and i'm like oh my god i see it this is brilliant you know and then we had develop and then we developed the jersey housewives anyway there you go So then you make the big switch. So you're you're this behind the scenes guy. Things are going great, clearly. Yeah. And how does Andy Cohen then end up live on television, the, you know, for argument's sake, the face of Bravo? I was emailing Lauren and Francis Barrick uh like Every day from the set of Battle of the Network reality stars, I was emailing them all the gossip that was happening on, you know, with all the reality stars, because it was just so surreal and Fellini-esque and cracking me up. And Lauren, who's ever intrepid, said, you know what, you should, you're a good writer, you should write a blog uh, on the Bravo website, and you'll be the only network executive to have a blog. This was, you know, really before people were branding themselves and there was little social media blogs were really the thing. So I started writing this blog and because of the blog, I started getting interviewed as kind of a pop culture or a TV pundit on CNN. I went on Aaron Brown a couple of times and I went on random shows just talking about the business of television or reality TV or and I loved it. And I thought it was so cool. And I was, I was very excited about all these TV appearances. It was, it was really exciting for me. And then Lauren said, why don't you do 
a she wanted to create programming for the website for bravotv.com. So she had me do, she said, would you want to do a live show after Top Chef on bravotv.com with you and the eliminated chef and you could take calls from viewers and emails? And I said, yeah. And I did it out of a closet at CNBC and literally in Englewood, New Jersey. That was where the facility was that could broadcast right. online and I did it. I did it for a season or two of Top Chef and for a season of Project Runway. She said it'll be an extension of your blog. And then, and they got it sponsored. So it kind of started making a little money. And then we needed someone to host the season two Real Housewives of Orange County reunion. And she said, Would you want to do it? And it'll be like your watch what happens live, the the show online, but on TV. And we called it a watch what happens special. And then that's what all the reunions were called. And I went on to do reunion shows for flipping out and this show workout and just other shows that were on Bravo millionaire matchmaker. And the whole time I was still in charge of programming and I wasn't pitching myself to do this stuff, but I was, the reunions were doing well I was doing it, you know, I was like, just pay me a hundred dollars, like pay me the minimum, you know, I didn't, because I also didn't want them to think that I thought I was worth anything as a host because I knew that I wasn't, you know, so they were letting me do it. It was not, this was not anything, but, and I thought one day there will be a day, maybe when I am worth something to them where I can kind of monetize this in a big way. Mm -hmm. So in, in terms of Watch What Happens Live, how did you come up with kind of the format? Because one of the things I love about it is just it feels like people are willing to say things that they would not necessarily say on other shows. And uh, certainly yeah. some of that is the alcohol. But they they will cop to things. And I think part of it is yeah. the format that you've created. I do, too. And I think part of it is just that I just will ask them point blank things. And I think – and the format came about from the web show, really. That web show, I was like, I want to play a game. I play more than one game now, but I was like, I want to play, I want to play games and I want to take viewer calls. It, in my mind, it was like a twisted version of like Larry King live meets playboy after dark meets the Robin bird show basically. <laughs> and so, so watch what happens live. The, the, show that's still on now 13 and a half years in michael davies the great producer michael great davies, michael davies yep he came to bravo and said i have this little studio in my production company i could broadcast andy's show from this studio on bravo for very little money and i think Corey abraham who was in charge of development at the time got him down they said to me would you want to do this i said absolutely Corey got him down to like $50,000 an episode or $52,000 an episode, which is nothing. I mean, 13 and a half years ago, that was nothing. So that was how it started. And I remember we were at, he and I had lunch at the Palm when he was pitching me the idea. And he said, what would you want the show to be? I said, I want to do three little bits of business at the top of the show called Here's What. I want to play a game in the second act. And I want to do a mazel and a jackal at the end of the show. And that was it. And it still basically is that format. And how, how long did you lead the double life of executive and on-air personality? A long time. First, I gave up my job at, well, you know what? It took a while because first it was on once a week. Right. Then it was on twice a week. And then when it moved five days a week, I stopped being in charge of 
original program. I was at that point EVP of production and development. Right. I stopped being in charge of production, but I stayed being in charge of development. So I would run development. That was my day job. And then do watch what happens live five days a week. And then we wound up after a year of that or something, I, I gave that up and I just did, you know, this and the reunions and I was able to keep being an executive producer of the housewives, which was great. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you about my favorite segment on Watch What Happens Live, which is the Plead the Fifth segment. Yes. First of all, how did you come up with the idea? Second of all, what is your favorite answer to that question? Oh, wow. Or one of the most memorable ones. It, and by the way, I do just want to say, in answer to your thing about people an- answering everything on the show, it really, I think it, the combination of the alcohol, but also I think people were really surprised by the questions that I was asking. Mm-hmm. And I think that the way that I got the balls to ask those questions is that I had already been doing so many housewives reunions. So I wasn't scared to ask people incredibly personal, sometimes offensive questions in front of a camera. And then when, when the show started, some friends of mine started coming on like Sarah Jessica Parker and Liam Neeson and Jerry Seinfeld were all doing me favors. And I certainly felt comfortable enough with them that I could start, you know, stirring up trouble and saying to Sarah Jessica, <laughs> tell me about dating JFK Jr. Like what kind of kisser was he? And so I think all that built up and I was a big Howard Stern fan and that also informed me. I wanted to be like him. But Plead the Fifth, when we went five nights a week, we were looking for gimmicks to highlight that we were on five nights a week. And Plead the Fifth was one of the things pitched to me by the team, fifth being, you know, something funny with the number five. And I was like, oh, that's a great game. Three questions. You can only plead the fifth to one. And... Uh, we've been playing it. And the funny thing is just the combination of the lighting cue and the music, people take it very seriously and they think that they have to answer everything. And we really, you know, and the truth is I will accept anything because I don't want people to be uncomfortable. I obviously want them to name names, but you know, you always, we, the creation of the plead the fifth questions is always really fun because you, you know, you're trying to, you're trying to, come up with stuff that's going to make news and the people are going to answer, but that also is considered really provocative. Gosh, my favorite questions. There've been so many. I asked, I asked Mariah Carey, say three, can you say three nice things about Nicki Minaj? She said, can you? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I asked Meryl Streep, Shag, Mary killed uh, Redford. Dustin Hoffman and Jack Nicholson. I think she shagged Jack Nicholson, married Redford, and killed Hoffman. Hilarious. I asked Susan Sarandon, what's an award show? Have you ever been to an award show, Stone? She goes, have I ever been to an award show, Stone? She said, I've been to every award show, Stone, except the Oscars, which was a great – that wound (laughs) up making a lot of news. I mean, we've had – we've made a lot of news on Plead the Fifth. It's mm-hmm. like it's a watch what bit. happens live is chum for the gossip mill. I mean, yep. we have created arguably more gossip, I think, certainly than any other late night talk show in our 13 and a half year run, because it's just it is all clickbait that comes right. from this show. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's good stuff. 
Um, you mentioned uh, late night television. Your show, as you also mentioned, going 13 years, you are renewed through 2023. So we've had a bunch of late night hosts on here. We've had uh, Jimmy Kimmel. We've had John Stewart. We've had Chelsea Handler. We've had Sam B. We talk a lot about the future of late night TV. Yeah. You are, you know, you brought a whole new thing to late night. You're now a fixture of late night TV. What you have thoughts about where late night's going and as a, as a day part? And as a- I really don't. I mean, does day part, does that term even exist anymore? Well, exactly. I, yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was amazed, um, reading. I've been kind of out of the loop about network television ratings, but I was amazed when I saw on deadline the other day that Mariah Carey's Christmas special won the night for CBS with 3.9 total, 3.9 million total viewers. And I was like, wow, this is where we are. This is the number one show on network television. So the answer is, I don't know. It's going to be very interesting to see how how is this all sustainable i don't know i don't know you know thankfully the budget for my show is relatively low certainly compared to all the other late night shows right you're you're, i'm assuming you're on you're on peacock right as well we are yeah we're on peacock and bravo right and you know but the numbers the ratings the live ratings i mean it's incredible to me how where we're at just as a medium. And so I not only can not predict the future of late night, I can't predict the future of anything because it's, it's uh it's a scary world. I will say it's, I, I think Bravo, Bravo is perhaps, I mean, I don't know what else, but it's one of the very few networks that has any brand identity that means anything to anyone at this point i can't well that's, really that's exactly think... right that's a you, know, you got a great brand but you're you're one of the few networks that's actually still doing uh some original programming like a lot of the cable yes. networks have back, you know mtv and comedy central have kind of backed off of that completely and and bravo still you guys got great it's shows incre- every night i know listen and we we just had BravoCon, which is i mean right. the fact that thirty thousand people traveled to New York city to spend three days at the Javits center and at the Hammerstein ball. I mean, that's an incredible statement, you know, I do have one other question before Jen has our traditional final question, which is we ask everybody, well, you'll see our final question, but what I want to know from you is, do you have a favorite grateful dead concert? Oh my God. A favorite (laughs) grateful dead concert. Yeah. You know what? I really don't because they're all something so special and also because usually by the end i'm in some sort of altered altered state first yeah i mean but i've had i will say do you still go to like these revamped dead shows i do you know the like the john mayer shows and the whole thing the the incredible thing first of all i will say maybe my favorite was i drove with my friend jj to alpine alpine valley wisconsin when i was in high school and my mom i slept in my convertible in the parking lot my buick skylark 1972 nice. convertible and in the parking lot and i camped out for the weekend in the parking lot of alpine valley which is amazing that they would let you do that at the time uh i think that that was pretty special but John Mayer and I are really good buddies and we were really good buddies 
years ago when he was getting into the dead and it made us closer. And at the time he spent a week subbing between James Corden and before James Corden took the late show, John hosted it for a week. And I was a guest one night and he had Bob Weir and the dead on and he played with them. And I believe that was around the time that it was the inception of John joining the group and them touring. And John and I took a road trip to see the Fare Thee Well concerts together. And John was secretly going to join the group. And to have my friend join this group that I that meant so much to me that I hadn't seen touring since Jerry died. I I've been, not only have I been on the road with them so much, but I've been, you know, kind of, I I'm like, have become great friends with like the real housewives of the grateful dead. And I've got, and Bob <laughs> Weir has been on my show a bunch of times and I, I introduced it. them at city field this summer oh, one wow. night. And so I've gotten to live I've gotten access to the dead that has just absolutely blown my mind completely because of John. And it's a wonderful just gift that's happened in my life. I was going to say, you are the envy of deadheads uh, everywhere. I'm, uh, yeah, well, I mean, we're, we're all just happy they're back, you know, and, <laughs> and touring around, you know. What's better, getting a table at the Waverly Inn or having this access to the Grateful Dead? That's a really good question. I'm going to go with the Grateful <laughs> Dead access. Yeah. Oh. All right. right, That's fair. Okay. So our last question, which is also something we ask of all of our guests, what outside of your own work? So like, let's say outside of Bravo is your favorite basic cable show of all time. Oh my God. That's such a hard question. Oh my God. My favorite basic cable show of all time. I think it would have to be the real world. Because it was an absolute genre buster. It changed MTV. It changed my life. I was a soap opera fan. I immediately, when it started, it blew my mind in the way there have only been a couple shows. I would say, I would say The Real World and Survivor were two shows that when they started, my TV obsessed mind was absolutely blown because. It just seemed like an infinite universe that had been created and it could go and go and go. And 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 I just thought, wow, well, this is gonna change everything. And both shows did. And they did. They, they did, did. Yeah. 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 Andy Cohn, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's Thanks, a Andy. pleasure. I love talking TV with you guys. It was fun. So, Doug, that was such a fun conversation with Andy Cohen, and it's just so interesting that he started out like behind the camera, really on the hard news side of things, or hard harder than certainly what we see on Bravo, which is purely entertainment. I feel like a lot of people don't remember that about him, like wh- what his roots are and where he came from. Right. No, he re- look. He's a student of television. He loves television, and that was, I think, why it was so much fun to talk to him. He just really loves talking about TV, but yeah, I know he, he has, has had such an interesting career. And, you know, I think the interesting thing is, you know, he was never going to be able to be himself, I think as a newscaster, which is, I think what his early ambition was. And he found himself at the right network at the right time. And he gets to be Andy Cohen and he's does it pretty well, doesn't he? He does. I mean, I, I really do love watching 
Watch What Happens Live. I think it's a really fun talk show that, for whatever reason, sometimes it doesn't get talked about much as far as being part of the late night landscape, but it absolutely is. And I think it's a really fun, the way that he's formatted it. And I just, like, cannot believe how huge The Real Housewives still is. I mean, that is that franchise is, like, bigger than the MCU, practically. When you sit down and you look at all the shows that they've made, all the spinoffs, and, and the longevity of it, it's incredible. I mean, yeah, and I it's amazing to me what big stars all those women are. You know, what I mean, they're huge celebrities, and, and in their own rights, you know, you see them on commercials, you see them on mm-hmm. talk shows, you see them doing all kinds of things, endorsements. And, yeah, I mean, it's an ecosystem that, you know, shows no sign of slowing down. Um, you know, like the real world, it's one of those formats that, you know, you can kind of repopulate and reinvent a million times as you go along. And somehow the audience can't seem to get enough of it. Yeah, I mean, Andy talked about it being like a soap opera and that that's how he envisioned it. I don't know if you have an opinion on this, but do you, do you think that's really why it continues to be so popular? Because it is basically a soap opera? I mean, there's, it, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's part of it. I do think a lot of it has to do with the kind of, you know, sort of personalities they're able to cast and, and, and get in front of the camera. I mean, I think they've had, there's been some really fascinating, outrageous, um, funny, um, distinctive personalities along the way. And I think, you know, if you're a viewer of the show, you look forward to who you're going to get each season or who might be added or, or, you know, when they're starting a new one, you know, what that might be all like. So I think it's a combination of, you know, sort of great storytelling and great characters, which is good. That's good television, no matter what you're doing. Right. Exactly. I also feel like it, it taps into, uh, at least from an American perspective, our kind of conflicting feelings about wealth, because on one hand you can watch it and sort of luxuriate in the, over the topness of of the uh, lifestyles these people have, but you can also be like, oh, these people are terrible. I'm I'm much more in control of my emotions than these women are, and so it's like this dual edged sort of like, yeah, feeling feeling both bad about yourself, like yeah, I don't have a yeah. hot tub in you know in my house, but uh, but on the other hand, you know, I don't necessarily maybe want to be them, but right. uh, no, it's you know, look, it's America in a nutshell, probably, which is also which is which is also why it works. So yeah, absolutely. Well, hope you thought this worked as well. And uh, Jen and I were uh, so happy to have Andy. We're happy you came along. And uh, we look forward to uh, seeing you next time on BASIC. BASIC is a Pantheon Media production in partnership with Sirius XM. Hosted by Jen Cheney and Doug Herzog. Produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli. Lindley Ehrlich is our assistant producer. Sound design and music by Jerry Danielson. Mixed and mastered by Brian Slusher. Recorded and edited by Zach You can find BASIC on Apple Podcasts, the SiriusXM app, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you like the show, please rate, review, and share so other people can find us. Don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 